The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, the tragically short presidency of James Garfield. From the time he took office, he was focused on cleaning up the dirty politics of Washington, and he was making progress, ensuring those that held lucrative government jobs were actually qualified for those jobs, something that didn't always happen. But before he could really make his mark, two gunshots left him fighting for his life. He died 11 weeks later, leaving the country and history experts to this day wondering what might have been. One of the shortest presidencies with the greatest potential for success, James Garfield, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We've asked Todd Arrington to join us to help shed some light on President James Garfield. He's worked for several different national parks around the country and is now the site manager of the James Garfield National Historic Site in Mentor, Ohio. When it comes to the Civil War period, Todd knows his stuff, being published several times in all sorts of outlets, including handbooks, blogs, and authored a really interesting book titled The Last Lincoln Republican, The Presidential Election of 1880. Todd, welcome to American POTUS. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited. Todd, I really enjoyed your book. And I, you know, Garfield is someone, frankly, I didn't know that much about. I'm so impressed with him now. I'm really Really enjoyed learning more about him through your terrific book. Could you, for our listeners, tell us, to get us started today, tell us just a bit about Garfield's life before he entered politics. Where was he brought up? What was his profession? How did he meet his wife? Those types of things, kind of the pre-politics, pre-national notoriety days. Sure. Yeah, happy to. And thanks for the the kind words about the book. Uh, Garfield was born in 1831 in, uh, in northeastern Ohio. Uh, he is a child of the so-called Western Reserve, which is this uh, the name that was given to this part of Northeast, what's now Northeast Ohio. Um, he's, uh, he's raised primarily in a single parent household. His dad died when he was only about 18 months old. Um, so he's raised by his mother. He's the youngest of four and spends really, you know, the, 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 all of the early years of his life in, in this sort of small area of Northeast Ohio. Um, he dreams of life as, you know, going to sea and becoming a sailor. And, uh, you know, the furthest he ever gets on that is the, uh, Ohio and Erie canal where he promptly falls in several times and, you know, <laughs> okay. never, never bothered to learn how to swim. And oh. so gets, he gets sick and his mom kind of has to nurse him back to health. And she's the one, uh, his mother, Eliza, that really convinces him to go get an education and so he starts going to school first at the Geauga Seminary and then at the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, what's now called Hiram College, and uh, finds he's you know quite intelligent, uh, has a great aptitude for for academic pursuits, and uh, that's that's the life he he chooses. He actually goes into you know into education. He goes up to Williams College in Massachusetts. 
and matriculates there with what's you know what we what is a bach, you know a bachelor's degree and uh, comes back to northeast ohio returns to his alma mater uh, the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute starts teaching there. Eventually, becomes what they called at the time the principal, uh, and you know, which today we would think of as the president of the institution. Uh, and he's in that job until uh, until really the beginning of the Civil War. He also became uh, an Ohio State senator in the late 1850s. So he was kind of dividing his time between here in uh, in Northeast Ohio, kind of the Cleveland area. And uh, and spending time in Columbus as a state senator uh, when the Civil War came, and that's when he then went into the army and and uh, had uh, you know a pretty you know pretty eventful few years in the army, and then of course at that point went into uh, into Congress, and that's where he stayed until he became president. How did he meet Lucretia? They were uh, classmates uh, first at the Geauga Seminary. Uh, and then at West, the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, uh, her father actually was one of the founders of the Eclectic, and uh, and so she was going to school there, you know, which was somewhat, uh, you know, progressive for the era, right. and uh, so she was she was well educated as well for a, a woman of that of that period, and uh, and so they met at at the Geauga Seminary, and then sort of continued getting to know each other at the uh, the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute. I see. So you you noted that while he was serving in the army during the Civil War, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. As a congressman then, how did he make his name? What issues did he focus on? What leadership uh, positions did he attain? Well, he, uh, he, of course, he went to Congress while the war was still going on. He was elected in, eight, in the fall of 1862, but this was in the era when, when Congress, new Congresses did not go into session until the following December. So he had about a, a year between when he was elected and when he actually had to go to Washington. So he stayed in the Army for another year while he was a congressman-elect. So he went there, of course, uh, having served in the Army for about two and a half years. So he was very uh, concerned about the direction of the war. He wanted to obviously put the Union in the, in the best possible footing to win. And he went there, you know, really, frankly, with a not a great opinion of Abraham Lincoln. Garfield was was one of those who believed from day one that, you know, slavery was the root cause of the war. This is slavery was what the war was all about. And slavery had to be eliminated for there to be any possibility of of lasting peace between the North and South. And he said this many times while he was in the army. Uh, He said this, you know. Two days after Fort Sumter, that everybody knew it was all about slavery, and 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 if they didn't admit that, they were kidding themselves, and um and so he was very frustrated during the war that when it took Lincoln, what Garfield viewed as 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 too long to make the war about abolishing slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation. So you know Lincoln finally did that, and Garfield approved of that, of course, but you know he still had some some unkind things to say about about Lincoln sometimes. Um, but he went there, you know, primarily at least at the beginning, while the war was still going on, to try to try to make sure that that he did everything he could to make sure that the United States won the war over the Confederacy, and then also did right by what would eventually become the the formerly enslaved, the freed people of the South. So civil rights became a major, major. Um, uh, issue for him as a congressman, and then he also was very deeply interested in and involved in in fiscal policy. Um, education was obviously having been a, a you know a teacher and a and a, a scholar for a while was was something that mattered uh, deeply to him as well. So, Todd, we know that 
Garfield was at times disappointed with Lincoln, but certainly he was no fan of Andrew Johnson. Can you describe that relationship? Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, you know, the relationship between Johnson and Garfield was interesting in that I think it was one that Johnson thought would be far far different than it ended up being. You know, Garfield was a f- pretty reliable radical Republican when Johnson was was president, and uh, Johnson I think viewed Garfield as somebody who was a little more moderate, who was a little more willing to 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 wheel and deal, if you will, and uh, and I think. Johnson thought he could use Garfield as kind of a bridge uh, t- between himself, Johnson, and, and the radicals. And, and of course, Garfield was just not interested in doing that at all. He saw right through that. And, and so that, that relationship eventually, you know, kind of deteriorated. And, uh, you know, Garfield ended up saying some, some pretty, uh, pretty, pretty nasty things about Johnson. Garfield did kind of go back and forth about whether or not Johnson should be impeached, um, to the point where, you know, Garfield basically said he, he definitely wanted to see Johnson removed from office. We've got to get rid of Johnson somehow, but he wasn't sure that it was going to succeed. And then when it finally came down to it, uh, to vote on the articles of impeachment in the house, Garfield wasn't even there that day he was traveling. So he missed the vote. So he didn't actually even vote to, to impeach Johnson. But yeah, no, that, that relationship was, was not a very strong one either to say the least. And one Surprised me though, I'm reading your your really great book was that the relationship that Garfield had with his fellow Ohioan President Grant was not a real warm relationship. I would have thought, given their shared experience in the war and their shared views on the importance of protecting the freedmen, that type of thing would have brought them more close together. Why wasn't that a a better relationship? Well, I think the problems between Grant and Garfield were really more founded in 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 that contest in 1880. Uh, when you know Grant had had been out of office for four years and and was was willing to come back and run again if the Republicans nominated him, uh, and then of course that's the year they ended up choosing Garfield instead. So you know when Grant was president, yeah, they weren't the best of friends. They weren't particularly close, but you know Garfield again being a, a good Republican was was pretty supportive of Grant's uh, Grant's programs for the most part. Um, and in fact, in 1876, when the the Tilden Hayes election took place, and that was disputed, and both parties were sending observers to the three disputed southern states, Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina, uh, Grant actually asked Garfield to go to Louisiana and be one of the Republican observers there, which Garfield did. Um, and then later, when the Electoral Commission was created, which was which charged with trying to decide, you know, what really happened in those states, who should get those electoral votes, who will actually be the 19th president. Uh, Garfield ended up being on that commission too. He was one of the members of that commission. So, so Grant and Garfield did work fairly well together while Grant was president. Again, their, their personal relationship was never that close, but, um, but they did work fairly well together. I think the, the, the real sort of thing that broke that was, was that, situation in 1880 where Grant uh again wanted wanted to be nominated again of course he couldn't say that publicly but um expected to be nominated again and then the 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 um nomination ended up going to Garfield instead was Garfield affected by any of the um scandals in the Grant administration well the biggest one of course was credit mobilier and and Gar- uh, Garfield was uh, actually implicated in credit mobilier uh, he was accused of of you know taking these these stocks that were kind of, that were kind of shady and uh, and 
and when they investigated Garfield, they found that he had somehow ended up with a with a, a grand total of three hundred and twenty nine dollars, and uh, and so you know Garfield you know wrote it off as 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 nothing. He got some you know he got a little uh, a little flack in the press about it, but uh, that blew over. So Garfield really did not suffer any lasting damage from Credit Mobilier, but that's definitely of the gar- of all the Grant you know Grant era scandals, that's the one that most personally affected uh, affected Garfield. You saw Garfield there at the beginning of the Hayes administration taking an important role in the commission. During the Hayes administration, how did he view their actions in the South? Well, you know, Garfield was was again a, was a strong supporter of of the the freed people in the South. Hayes, of course, I think, you know, frankly Rutherford B Hayes gets a bad rap in history. People have this view of him as the guy who, you know, abandoned the, the the black man in the South and ended Reconstruction, and that's so overblown. I mean, that was all happening before Hayes became president. What Hayes agreed to do was was so much less than than what people attribute to him. Um, you know, he he agreed to maybe not have federal troops uh, protecting polling places as much, which actually was very important because, of course, it it, it allowed uh, African Americans to feel safe when they were when they were voting, and also to to you know to not be in some of the places that Southerners didn't want them. But a lot of that stuff about you know pulling the troops out of the South, which is always blamed on Hayes, was was already happening. Anyway, what Hay and what Hayes was trying to do was basically show, let the South demonstrate that it could, in fact, manage more of its own affairs and that it could treat uh, treat the freed people properly. So Hayes tried to take this sort of more moderate uh, tack with that, and and Garfield was okay with that, with giving it a shot. But then Garfield also eventually, you know, had to admit that it was a complete failure. Because white Southerners and and white Southern Democrats, especially, just had no interest in treating treating the freed people fairly, and uh, and so they they had to eventually admit that that whole experiment had had basically been a failure. If you'd like to know more about the James Garfield National Historic Site, simply visit AmericanPotus.com. We have a resource section there with a link to their website that includes all sorts of information on our twentieth POTUS. And while you're at the American POTUS site, send us a note and let us know about any other presidential experts that you think would make for an interesting future episode. Thanks for listening to American POTUS. Earlier, you mentioned the election of 1880, really a fascinating election. The route that Garfield took to nomination and victory that year was so unexpected. Could you just summarize for our listeners the path he took to the Republican nomination? He was you noted the first presidential candidate present at the convention that nominated him. True. Yeah, he was. And, and, and that's a pretty good indication to me that he really didn't expect to be nominated. But yeah, Garfield actually went to that 1880 Republican convention in Chicago uh, actually to nominate someone else. Uh, Garfield had actually, in, in January of 1880, at the beginning of the year, had been elected by the Ohio legislature to the U.S. Senate. He had managed to, to get elected to the Senate with the help of and, and the, you know, the blessing of John Sherman, who was an Ohioan, the brother of the famous General William Tecumseh Sherman. Um, and Sherman was a longtime Ohio senator, and, and then at this point under Hayes, uh, under President Hayes, Sherman was Secretary of the Treasury. So Sherman wanted to be the Republican presidential nominee in 1880. 
and Garfield wanted to be wanted to go from the House to the Senate. So they basically, you know, helped each other. And so uh, Sherman gave his blessing to Garfield, uh, you know, really to the Ohio legislature to nominate Gar- or to elect Garfield. And then the Garfield's part was he was going to support Sherman for the Republican presidential nomination. So he went to Chicago uh, at Sherman's request and and gave the speech nominating Sherman for the nom- the, the the presidential nomination. And um, you know Garfield knew that that Sherman's odds of being nominated were were pretty slim. He didn't really think Sherman had a chance, but he had agreed to this. And so he went and did his duty for Sherman. Um, and really at that point, the convention was, was, um, was deadlocked because none of the major candidates, the candidates that everybody expected to be, uh, in contention for the nomination were, had enough votes. U S grant, uh, being one, of course, James Blaine from, from Maine being the other who, who was very friendly with Garfield. Uh, and then, of course, John Sherman. So it basically became a, a sort of a, a fractured convention in that they couldn't decide on a nominee. And so they eventually started looking in Garfield's direction really as, as a true compromise choice. There actually had been people prior to the convention, really all the way back into 1879, sort of floating the idea of Garfield as a potential presidential candidate in 1880. Garfield knew this. He certainly didn't tamp that down. I mean, he was a good politician. He was playing all of his of his options, but he really did not think anything was going to come of that in 1880. He was more than happy to be going to the Senate. And oh, by the way, he was 48 years old. He's a young man. He's got, you know, potentially decades left in in politics. And so if he wants to be president, and of course he did, everybody does in Washington, even to this day, I think, um, you know, he had plenty of time to, to do that. So he agreed to go to the convention as a sitting member of the House, as a senator elect to give this speech for Sherman. And then after 36 ballots, uh, he himself ended up as a true compromise or dark horse nominee for the presidency in 1880. How did Sherman react to that? Well, Sherman, Sherman had a pretty prickly personality anyway. And in fact, his nickname was the Ohio icicle, uh, (laughs) which is a great nickname. It sounds like a, you know, it sounds like a, like a superhero or a super villain, I guess I should say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, Sherman was, was kind of, you know, not, he was a pretty cold, you know, not a very openly affectionate, uh, uh, backslapping kind of kind of politician. You know, he believed that Garfield had, in fact, done what he said he would do. He gave the speech. Um, he did approve of Garfield as as the choice because he certainly didn't want to see Grant nominated uh, to run for a third term. There were a number of people who were at the convention who later told Sherman that you know Garfield was disingenuous and he was treacherous and he didn't serve Sherman's purposes very well he served his own i think that's a little overblown too uh i i think Garfield you know did as much as he could uh for Sherman i just don't think Sherman had a very good chance it was you know it, it just wasn't in the cards for him in 1880 Sherman you know again you know did send his congratulations uh, and he approved of Garfield as a compromise choice, but but he didn't he did not approve of Chester A. Arthur as the vice presidential candidate. 
because Arthur, of course, was from that stalwart uh, wing of, of the Republican Party that, that Sherman did not care for. So, you know, Sherman felt that this ticket was kind of a mixed bag. You know, Garfield, okay, well, if we had to have somebody, I guess Garfield's okay. Uh, but Arthur is uh, is not a good choice for vice president. He's never been elected to any office. And the, the, the most important office that he did hold, which was collector of the Port of New York, uh, he was fired from by President Hayes for corruption. Uh, so so Sherman is not pleased with um, is not pleased at all with the choice of of Arthur, but is, you know, I guess you would say as as polite as he could be un- considering the circumstances about Garfield being the nominee instead of himself. We recently had a great conversation on American POTUS with Scott Greenberger and his book. Oh, on yeah. Chester Good book. Yeah. A really terrific yep. book and interesting relationship there between Garfield and Arthur for sure in the short time they they served together two wings of the Republican Party. So just an utterly fascinating time, utterly fascinating election. Let's talk a bit about Garfield's opponent in the general election, General Winfield Scott Hancock. Who was he and how did he attain the nomination for the for the Democratic Party? Yeah, Hancock's a really interesting character. He, I mean, he's a, he's obviously a Civil War hero. I mean, he he uh he he graduated from West Point, he fought in the Mexican-American War. And then when he was born in Pennsylvania, so he's a northerner, he's a lifelong Democrat. Um, he, you know, he had been talked about before, too, as a possible potential, you know, presidential candidate someday. And, and he very much liked that conversation being had about him. Um, there was he was considered, I believe it was he uh, at least one other Democratic convention. I think it was 1876. He was considered um, a, a potential candidate as well. Keep in mind, this is an era when when generals could stay on active duty and run for president at the same time. So he was very interested in in the job. You know, he wanted to be president for sure. He had no elective office experience. Um, the thing that really made him a potential candidate in 1880 and a particularly uh, palatable candidate for for Southerners was that he had had a very brief tenure in New Orleans as the commander of the 5th military district uh, in the in the 1860s after the civil war and he had shown a lot of willingness to basically turn as much power back over to white southerners as possible and so white southerners really liked this and so uh Hancock even though he you know fought for the for the United States during the Civil War he bled for the United States I mean he was wounded several times including almost fatally at Gettysburg um but he is is acceptable to the south um one because he's a democrat of course but two because of of that that period a very brief period uh, just a matter of months really when he was in in New Orleans um as the head of the 5th military district. So, you know, Hancock is so interesting because I mean, fascinating guy anyway, but um it's the this is the only election 1880 is the only presidential election in American history where both candidates, the Republican and the Democrat, were both Union Civil War veterans. And, you know, the 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 Republicans had made so much hay out of waving the bloody shirt at at the Democratic Party, this idea of you know reminding uh, voters that hey you know Democrats are the party of secession, they're the party of slavery, they're the party of of traitors, and they're the party that put you know three hundred thousand Union soldiers in their graves. 
And it was very hard to do that against Winfield Scott Hancock in 1880 because he had fought for the North. He had bled for the North and he was still on active duty as a, as a general in the U S army. So, um, you know, nominating him was, was a, a stroke of genius and it very nearly worked. In addition to Hancock and Garfield, there were several other parties in this election, really interesting parties, the Greenback Prohibition, the American Anti-Mason Parties. Could you summarize just what those parties stood for and how did they fare in 1880? Yeah, I mean, the Greenbacks, the Greenback Party was the most significant third party in, in 1880. Um, and their main issue, of course, was was the idea of paper money, This the, the Greenbacks, you know, that's, you know, we today when you have cash in your wallet, uh, you know, it's got that green ink, it's still green. And so um, these were called greenbacks during the Civil War. They, they were put into use during the Civil War really um, to give the, the federal government more flexibility and the, the ability to, you know, create it, uh, a currency that's not backed by gold. It's basically backed by, it's an inflationary currency backed by the good credit of the U.S. government. Um, as when the war ended and the government didn't need that kind of of purchasing and spending power a lot of people including James Garfield wanted those greenbacks gradually taken out of circulation and going they would go back to hard money specie you know money backed by gold and um the greenbackers liked they, they tended to be midwestern um, and they liked uh, they they liked this this uh, paper money because it gave them more more buying power. Um, they ran a guy named uh, James uh, James B. Weaver, who was uh, from Iowa, also a Civil War general, um, and uh, he was a former Republican too, actually. Um, so they ran they ran Weaver in in eighteen eighty. Um, there was a, a very small presence by uh, the Prohibition Party. Of course, they were all about banning uh, the sale and transport of alcohol. Um, the ant there was, you know, the anti Masons or the old sort of know nothings, if you will, or, or American parties that that you know wanted to ban secret societies. So there were definitely some some sort of third or fourth or fifth parties in uh, in in eighteen eighty Weaver and and the Greenbacks. The Greenbackers were the most significant and even still only garnered about, oh, I think it was about maybe 300 or so thousand votes. Um, so it's a, you know, it was a very close election. So those 300,000 seem like, you know, seem pretty important. Um, but, uh, but ultimately, yeah, they, that, that was, that was the best showing by any non-major party in, in 1880 was the Greenbacks. So it was a tough fight for Garfield in 1880. What was his strategy in that election? And putting aside civil rights just for a second, what other issues did he focus on? Well, he, you know, Garfield, you know, Garfield planned to be the same as pretty much every other presidential candidate of that era, which is you you don't talk about yourself. You don't really talk, period. You, you know, as, as Hayes told Garfield, stay home, sit cross-legged and look wise, um, you know, it's what Scott and I do every day. <laughs> right. Of course. I mean, don't we all? Yeah. It's, it's, it just, it comes so naturally to us now. Um, but, um, you know, candidates are not expected to do any heavy lifting on these campaigns in this era. The parties are going to do all of the work. And so Garfield plans to do that. He plans to let the Republican party, you know, do, do all the work. But what happens 
is that people start coming to Garfield's house. Again, he's an unexpected candidate. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's got an, he does have something of a national reputation. He's very well known inside Ohio. His reputation had been growing, uh, as 1880 approached because of some of the stands he had taken in Congress and some of the speeches he had given that were printed and, you know, read by people all over the country. Um, but you know, people still, a lot of people still didn't know that much about him. And so they just kind of started showing up here again, speaks to how different things are now, you know, you can't just walk up to a presidential candidate's home and, you know, today and, and knock on the door and, you know, expect them to, to answer the door and, and invite you in. But that's what happened here in, in Mentor, Ohio, uh, on Garfield's farm. People just started showing up. So Garfield actually did start uh, giving uh, speeches from the, the front porch of the house here. Very short speeches, very general in nature, not any you know specific policy proposals or anything like that. Uh, in fact, he was really good at sort of tailoring what he was saying to the crowd he was talking to, whether it was you know uh, businessmen from Cleveland or you know farmers from Indiana or African American Civil War veterans, what, whatever the case may be. He he was very good at sort of tailoring his message to that group, um, and he talked again about a lot of the stuff you would expect a Republican running for president in 1880 to say talked about, you know, not even so much about the greatness of the Republican party, but just about the danger of giving the government to the Democrats. They were still the party of secession. They were still the party that had supported slavery and they were the party that killed Abraham Lincoln. Um, and so, you know, those are the kinds of issues that Garfield was really dealing with. Um, you know, yeah, when asked, he would say a few things about the tariff or about some of the other uh, the other issues that that were pressing at that time. But, you know, he really didn't delve too much into issues in his front porch speeches. They were really were more sort of general and just kind of, uh, you know, patriotic in nature, I guess you would say. You call Garfield the last Lincoln Republican. Civil rights were a major focus for him throughout his career. Where did that deep commitment to civil rights come from? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I I think you know it came from one from being from Northern Ohio. Um, this is this was a reliably Republican and reliably abolitionist area. Uh, I think that's part of it. I think part of it also came from his understanding of 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 religion and the Bible. You know, he was a lifelong member of the Disciples of Christ, which is kind of a homegrown Protestant denomination. Uh, you know, created here in the United States. Um, I think I think that's part of it, you know, kind of how he and we we both, you know, anybody who who reads American history knows that Northerners and Southerners alike were very good at sort of cherry picking Bible quotes to 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 justify their own position, saying you know slavery is an abomination, or hey, slavery's perfectly natural; it's here in the Bible. Um, and and Garfield is one of those who really understood uh, that that this was an affront to to God and and to and to religion. So I, I think those two things, but, but, you know, his, just his, his understanding of what was right and what was fair. Um, you know, did Garfield say some things today and to other people or in his diary that kind of would make us cringe a little bit? Yes, absolutely. You know, he wasn't, he was a, he was a man of the 19th century. And so um, he could, he could sort of say some things that, that maybe make us a little uncomfortable now in terms of, you know, Ter terms that racial terms that he used or things like that, and yet still be be very dedicated to the idea of uh, of of civil rights for for the formerly enslaved. So, um, so I think you know just his understanding of religion, his understanding of law, and his really his understanding of 
of the country's history uh, too made him believe that that you know providing uh, giving the uh, giving the franchise to to black men uh, providing uh, as much protection as possible for for the uh, the rights and the physical safety of 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 the formerly enslaved was was the right thing to do and it was something that the government had to do and in his mind still needed to do as far forward as 1880 and 81 when he himself was becoming president so you say he's the last lincoln republican what how did the party change in the 19th century after that well you know even by the time garfield became president in 1880 uh, there were a lot of Republicans and, and a lot of former radical Republicans too, so-called radical. I don't know how radical, don't know that they were really all that radical by saying, you know, hey, all men are created equal and we should treat them as such. I mean, it doesn't seem very radical to me, but at the time, I, I guess it was a, a pretty radical stance. But even a lot of former radicals at that point were saying, okay, you know, it's 1880, the Civil War has been over for 15 years, Reconstruction is over. I would argue it wasn't, but a lot of them felt that it was, um, and we've done everything we can to to you know give civil rights to 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 the formerly enslaved. We've we've passed the Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution. Um, it's time for us to find other issues to deal with that will help us, the Republicans, remain you know not only uh, an important political force in the country, but help us remain in power. And so they and they they tended to find those new alliances with uh, very wealthy industrialists, with financiers. Um, this is really when the Republicans started getting that reputation as being the party of so-called big business. Um, but you still had some some Republicans that were still kind of banging the drum for civil rights and saying, "Hey, you know, we've done a lot of great work, but we are not finished." We still have much to do, and and one of those guys was James Garfield, um, mm. and that's really where that whole idea of the last Lincoln Republican comes from is simply Garfield being the last of that kind of original generation of Republicans who viewed that their party as a party that was there to to promote at least some degree of equality for everyone, economic equality, racial equality. Um, and they viewed uh, the Republican Party as a vehicle for that, but they also viewed a, uh, an activist federal government as, as a positive thing that could bring about positive change and should bring about positive change. Um, and so that's where that idea and that sort of phrasing of the last Lincoln Republican comes from. Some, some people would argue Benjamin Harrison maybe deserves that title, and, and the reason that I didn't really attach that to Harrison is um, yes, Harrison does speak up for for civil rights um, as president in in the late 1880s, um, but he also had a lot of issues that were very very uh, heartbreaking and 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 negative for American Indian pop populations. And so I didn't feel like you know I, I I felt like you know Garfield was probably more deserving of that title. And you know who knows how Garfield's presidency would have gone on things like like relations with with american indian tribes sure. um had he lived but we we just don't know that so right. we haven't featured benjamin harrison yet on american potus we need to do that so. mm, absolutely <laughs> better get on that <laughs> that's right we, we will scott get on that right away <laughs> so sadly after his victory in 1880 president garfield had almost no time to pursue any agenda 
shot by an assassin on July 2nd of 1881, died, what, two months later. Could you just go through for our listeners who shot the president? What efforts were made to save him in those months before his death? Yeah, it is tragic that, you know, he he had so much promise and and um, I think, you know, certainly had the potential to be a, a, a really strong president and, and didn't get to take advantage of that. He he was shot on, as you say, on July 2nd, 1881 by a, a guy named Charles Guiteau. And Guiteau actually considered himself a Republican. Um, he considers himself a stalwart Republican, which, uh, you know, there was a lot of factionalism in the Republican Party at this time. Um, you had your stalwarts who were the U.S. Grants and the Roscoe Conklings and even the Chester A. Arthurs who became vice president under Garfield. Uh, and then you had the more what they called sort of derisively the half-breeds who um, James Blaine, eh, Garfield to a degree was a half-breed as well. Um, and, and really these two sides didn't have that much separating them other than the stalwarts wanted Grant to be nominated and run again in 1880. The half-breeds did not. Um, some of the half-breeds were a little more interested in civil service reform. Uh, stalwarts generally were not. Um, stalwarts liked the patronage system where they could give out jobs to people after they won elections. They, they, um, that was how they built a base of power. It made them very powerful, and they had no interest in getting rid of that. So this guy, Charles Guiteau, who I have to, you know, I have to say right up front is is clearly mentally ill, um, but he also is someone who, you know, thinks he played a very, and again, this speaks to his mental illness. He thinks he played a very important role in getting Garfield elected, which he did not. Um, and so he goes to Washington after Garfield's inaugurated, basically tr- in search of a of a of a patronage job, and you know he shows up at the White House you know, several times. He even at one point gets an, gets an audience with President Garfield uh, and is kind of so, you know, out of sorts, he doesn't really even get anything out, you know, then they, before they escort him back out of the office. Um, so he, he continues to seek a job. He wants to be a, a consul in, in either Vienna or Paris, which of course is ridiculous because he has no qualifications or experience that would allow him to do anything like that. And he's eventually told in no uncertain terms by James Blaine, who becomes secretary of state under Garfield, you know, you're not going to get this job. Stop bothering us. Leave us alone. It's never going to happen. So then Guiteau in his mind decides that, you know, Garfield is moving too far away from Republican principles foremost among them, the patronage system, and, uh, and that the only way to deal with this is, um, is to kill Garfield and to make Chester A. Arthur president because Arthur is from that stalwart faction. Um, so, you know, this was a political assassination. Yes, mental illness is a huge part of it, um, but, it, you know, he's, he's all, Guiteau is always described in books as, you know, a disappointed office seeker, and he was. But he was much more than that too. He he was mentally unbalanced, and he was uh, he was also a political assassin as well. But uh, he shoots Garfield on July second. Garfield doesn't die right away. Uh, he actually manages to linger for about two and a half months, and uh, you know really endures some just absolutely horrendous medical treatment, and ultimately dies on September nineteenth, eighteen eighty one. Uh, not of bullet wounds, but of infection. It was the infection that his doctors introduced into his body that ended up killing him. So, so tragic. 
just over 200 days in office. What is the legacy of Garfield today? Well, you know, unfortunately, I think he's been largely ignored or forgotten, um, probably be primarily because he was president so briefly. Um, and, and that's that's a shame. I mean, he does deserve to be remembered and, and I think deserves to be uh, more researched by scholars and have more written about him and 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 to to be better understood as a really important figure in American history. Um, you know, there, there are many legacies. I mean, of course, yes, he was a politician. He was an important uh, political figure for, for 20 years uh, during and after the Civil War. I, I think he could have been a great president. He certainly had the tools for that. He knew how Congress worked. Uh, he'd been there for, for, for 17 years prior to becoming president. Um, but you know, we, you also look at the the human legacy. I mean, he was a husband, and he was a father, and and he left behind you know five children who didn't get to have their dad around when they uh, graduated from school or got married or had families of their own. So you know, that's uh, that's a legacy too that is important. You know, Garfield's only forty nine years old when he dies. I mean, he, you know, he certainly, barring any accidents or anything, would have lived into the twentieth century. Um, you know, as a, a guy who loved science and, 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 and all this kind of stuff, I think he would have been absolutely fascinated to see cars and to see, you know, the Wright brothers make their first flight. And, and, uh, there's just so much that, um, that he didn't get to see that I think he really would have found so fascinating. And so it just, those are legacies of his as well. The things he didn't uh, get to see or enjoy that I think he just really would have, would have been so fascinated by. So yeah, there's a political legacy. There's a personal legacy. And then, you know, there's also a legacy of the the property that he owned in mentor Ohio, which is now uh, James A. Garfield national historic site, a, a unit of the, you know, National Park Service. So there has been at least some effort to remember him and commemorate him here with the creation of this this National Park Service site as well. Okay, Todd, it's time for me to get a little personal with our 20th POTUS. Are you ready to help me out? Here <laughs> mm-hmm. we go. Okay. I asked the same question for all of our presidents that have served in the military. Let's see if you think he follows the pattern. He was a general, congressman, and a president. Which title meant the most to him? I would say probably general, and only because, like a lot of Civil War veterans, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of Civil War veterans, he was called general for the rest of his life. His wife even called him general sometimes. So even after he became a congressman or became president, he people, st- and this was very common among Civil War veterans on both sides. So I'm going to say, I would say general. Yeah, that 100% of them want that. That's right. (laughs) Everyone we've talked to, no, you're absolutely right. In this era, everyone that we've talked to about about these different presidents, the general title is the most important. Eight presidents have come from Ohio, including Garfield and the two before him, Hayes and Grant. Who would you say was the best suited for holding the office? Oh, boy. Um, Well, you know, I I mean, Grant clearly was the most Pop, you know, I, I liken him to Eisenhower a hun- almost 100 years later. You know, he has no elective experience, and yet he's the most popular man in the country, and 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 people want him, and so he goes into the White House and does a does a good job. Um, but I, I'm going to say that the people that had more elective office experience were probably the best suited. So for me, that's uh, Hayes and Garfield and Harrison and McKinley. 
so yeah, I think those guys were probably best suited because they knew what it meant to be in elective office and they had a lot of experience in Congress and they knew how Congress really worked. And so I think they, they, you know, could get a lot done or did get, did get a lot done. Good answer, Todd. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Great, pers- <laughs> great perspective. What would have been his secret service code name? What's the name that best suits him? Oh boy. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say either professor because of course he was a great scholar. Uh, he was, you know, I think one of the most purely intelligent men ever to sit in the white house. I'm going to say professor or maybe uh, linguist because he was very well known for, for being multilingual. He was able to speak, read and write several different languages. How did he unwind after a long day? What did he do for fun? Uh, he, he loved to read. He loved the theater. Uh, he and his wife both uh, loved Shakespeare. So they loved to go to the theater um, and you know, just like to be home with with his family. He he uh, he helped them with he helped the children with lessons, uh, including at dinner when he would bring you know spelling books to dinner, and he would ask them you know he would make them spell words while they were eating dinner. So you know, a, a lot of things centered around being home with the family and uh, and and uh, spending time with them. Nice. Do you have a favorite quote or moment from POTUS number twenty? Well, I mean, for me, again, you know, Garfield's uh, work and and, and um, advocacy for civil rights is really a, a, an interest of mine. So it, it's a lot of the the things that he he said when being when de- when talking about that issue. He gave a speech. Um, it was one of the only you know major speeches he gave during the campaign, and it was not here in Ohio. It was actually in New York City. Um, he was there to ha- attend a Republican meeting, um, and really to try to meet with Roscoe Conkling, who was the Senator from New York. And, you know, Conkling was supposed to meet with him and just didn't even bother to show up. Um, that's a whole nother podcast episode, I guess, but, uh, <laughs> um, he gave a speech that night, August 6th, 1880, where he, he talked to thousands and thousands of people in New York city about, about the war, what it was all about and, and what it meant for, the formerly enslaved. And, and it's, it's a, it's a great speech, uh, where he talks about, you know, we've seen white men betray the flag and fight to kill the union, but in all that long and dreary war, you never saw a traitor in a black skin. Um, so that, that, uh, and then he goes on and, and says more about, you know, the, uh, how we're going to do right by, by our, our black allies. And, um, and that to me just kind of set the tone for what his presidency may have been. And finally, Todd, in just one sentence, can you summarize Garfield's short time as president? I would say just simply untapped potential. Um, You know, it's a short sentence, but that's what I would say. I I just think the country was was very much denied what could have been a very, very strong and important, uh, not just a strong and important president, but a strong and important presidency that really may have have I mean the world? This country could look totally different now. For all I know, um, had Garfield lived to serve out a full term or two terms, um, so yeah, I'll just say untapped potential. What might have been? Yeah, yeah. Wow. potential denied or something like that. Before we let you go, Todd, first, are you working on a, a new book right now? What What's next for you? And, and can you tell our listeners a bit about what they will see when they visit the Garfield National Historic Site? Sure. Um, I, I'm, I don't have a, I'm working on kind of a proposal for, for a project that is not about Garfield. 
uh, and that is more geared toward the Civil War. Um, but it's so early, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can say much else about it because it's just not really formed in my head yet. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, but it's it's not it's not it's not Garfield related, um, but it definitely is one that I think would be interesting if I can figure out what it really needs to be. Um, as far as what people see here, um, you know, we're 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 a small park. We're only about uh, not quite eight acres. Um, and and this is eight acres of what was once 160 acres of of the Garfield's property here, um, and we're we're right on uh, you know we're just about five miles from Lake Erie. We're we're about 25 minutes from downtown Cleveland, so we're kind of up in the northeastern corner of of uh, of Ohio. And um, when when people come here when there's not a global pandemic, you know we we give guided tours of the Garfield home, which is a beautiful home. It's been amazingly restored. Uh, and has a, a an artifact collection of about eighty to eighty five percent original artifacts. It's just it's just a beautiful home, and so that's really our sort of our crown jewel here, and that's what people come here to see. Um, and we're looking forward to uh, one way or another getting it opened back up here uh, as as COVID starts to recede. Um, sometime this summer, hopefully, um, we have a visitor center where, you know, you can see a museum and a film, you know, the stuff you see at most visitor centers. Um, and we have a number of historic structures on the property as well. So we have walking paths around the, uh, the property. We have a couple of, uh, cell phone tours people can take outside. Um, you know, we, again, without a global pandemic, we do a lot of special events throughout the year. So, you know, we're, we're small, but mighty here. We do, we actually do, uh, we overachieve, I think, uh, in terms of what we can, what we do and what we offer here, um, for people. And then, and then of course we, you know, we have a big presence on social media as well as, as pretty much everybody does these days, I guess. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on American POTUS. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, Todd. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is, this has been a long time dream of mine. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Todd. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens and participates in the podcast. More information on all of our terrific guests can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there, we'd love to see your questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics. And remember to like or follow us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by the Thought Bureau and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from James Garfield, quote, Few men in our history have ever obtained the presidency by planning to obtain it.